I'm Tim Malloy. Welcome to Movie Maker. We're recording this on June 13th, and last night, the film we're about to talk about debuted at the Tribeca Festival. It's called It's Basic, and it's about the concept of universal basic income. The idea, basically, of giving away money to people to do with as they please. That sounded like kind of a wild idea to me when I first heard about it during the presidential campaign of Andrew Yang in 2020. Since learning more about it and watching this film, I have to say, I think I'm converted. It's Basic does an astonishing job of helping disabuse you of whatever notions you have about what people will do with money from the government. If you're thinking that people are going to spend their money on lottery tickets or booze or other stuff like that, uh, no. This film shows that people actually use the money to help other people, especially to help small children. Uh, the payments that people get from the government help them take care of their kids, of other people's kids, and of other people who badly need just a little bit of help in our society and are often overlooked and forgotten. If I can be real honest with you, I've been watching a lot of film festival screeners lately, and I've also been turning off a lot of those festival screeners because they're just not really holding my attention. I thought I would watch a couple minutes of It's Basic to just get a feel for what it was, and it caught my attention immediately. Not just with the incredibly skillful filmmaking, but just the way that it stands back and lets people tell their own stories so movingly. And sometime after midnight, I reached out to the publicist for the film to ask if I could possibly talk to the director, Mark Levin. He is our guest today. He very generously made time to talk about It's Basic and Universal Basic Income and about his entire film career. I can almost promise you've seen Mark Levin's work. He's the director of the unforgettable 90s documentary Gang War, Bangin' in Little Rock, which, as he's about to explain, counts Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg among its fans. And his credits also include the Sundance Grand Jury winner Slam, as well as the films Thug Life in D.C., the recent Adrian, and the outstanding docuseries Brick City, which followed then-Mayor Cory Booker and others as they tried to revive Newark, New Jersey. There's a sequence in Brick City where the men in a public school teach fatherless boys who attend that school how to tie a tie. And it's one of the most emotional things I've ever seen. Cory Booker is one of several politicians who turns up in It's Basic, which also includes a self-described recovering mayor named Michael Tubbs, who used to lead Stockton, California, and has helped introduce a universal basic income program there and in many other cities. He's also an executive producer of It's Basic. Finally, if you've made it through this entire intro going, wait a minute, who is going to pay for universal basic income and is this going to increase inflation? Don't worry, we are going to talk about both of those things in the conversation you're about to hear with Mark Levin, director of It's Basic. Mark Levin, welcome to Movie Maker. I was so impressed by It's Basic, which just debuted at Tribeca. You took me, a person in the audience who was honestly a little bit skeptical of the idea of a universal basic income, and really laid out exactly why it makes sense. And I think you've, I think you've converted me. Um, Can you explain what It's Basic is about to people who are uninitiated? Sure. Uh, It's Basic is about giving people money. Now, that sounds relatively simple or uh, preposterous. Uh, and uh, it, what, what is happening right now is uh, across the United States, uh, in over 100 cities, 
there are pilot programs being run where um, citizens who are below a certain income level uh, are in a lottery and get chosen to get $500 to $1,000 a month for a year, sometimes 18 months. And uh, there's a study accompanying that to see how it impacts uh, people's lives, what kind of difference it can make. So we followed uh, participants in these pilots in five different cities. And that makes up the spine of the film. It's basic, but also with some context and history about this idea of basic income or guaranteed income uh, not being new, having been uh, discussed and debated is, you know, back in the 60s and early 70s. And this is something that it's an issue and a position that unites people ranging from Richard Nixon to Martin Luther King to Bobby Seale. Just an incredible number of people, liberal and conservative, have recognized that economically this just makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I guess to sum up, I would say, look, the um, modern capitalist consumer global paradigm uh, is not working that well in the United States and for a lot of other advanced um, Western economies. Um, and we've seen this growth in the gap between the super wealthy and everybody else. We've seen the evisceration of the middle class. We've seen uh, the, the decimation of the working class. 60% uh, of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. So how do we reimagine and reinvent uh, our economy? I mean, that's the big question. Uh, and this is an idea that has been around, but is now uh, almost a subterranean movement because you wouldn't know much about it watching the news uh, and, and the recent debt crisis debate and, the, and everything we hear out of the Congress in Washington. Uh, but on the local level, uh, there are people experimenting to see, and, and then there's a whole other side of it, the, the AI technology automation, you know, that our jobs are changing, that jobs are disappearing, uh, that the work week may not be the same. So how are we going to provide a floor so people survive in this modern world, in this 21st century world. And this is an idea of can we supply just a, a, a basic floor uh, so that uh, food, shelter um, and clothing are supplied for, you know, that that's, that's part of being alive in the 21st century. Um, and this idea is spreading. And what's fascinating is the critique of it. And it's, uh, you give money away, it's going to take people's incentive away. Uh, they're not going to work. They're going to waste it on drugs and alcohol and gambling. And um, Actually, the studies that have done been done prove the exact opposite that it actually enables people to move ahead in their lives, to move forward, to get better jobs, um, to get better education. Uh, it empowers people. It's an investment, uh, not simply a giveaway. Uh, so uh, I say all that, but the movie really focuses on the, the lives of participants who represent a tremendous diversity of, of, of their own uh, races and regions and, and political uh, beliefs. Uh, it's a real mix. And it's their stories that are the centerpiece and the spine of this movie. It's based on. The people you find are exemplary, not just in terms of being examples of how this can work, but also exemplary in terms of how you hope human beings will be. 
um, there's a woman in it who opens the film. She's a bus driver in St. Paul, Minnesota named Lucille, um, who is not only raising her own children by herself, but also two children, two toddlers of a family member who couldn't take care of them. Um, someone who's really just being saintly in the way that she takes care of other people. Um, and that's, this program is helping her just get a little bit of cushion. I mean, it's not um, dramatically changing her life, but it's just making things a little bit less hard. Um, how did you find these people? And do you think that they are representative of people who are benefiting from universal income, basic universal income? Well, the way we found them is that um, each uh, project had what they were called a storytelling cadre, that a small group of people in that were recipients, but who agreed to speak publicly to the media to share their stories. And they were kind of isolated from the control group. Uh, so um, they were self-selected in that sense, that these were people that were motivated, wanted to share their stories. Um, so in that sense, you know, how typical, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to say. At the same time, uh, having gone, you know, and obviously we ended up in five cities, but we visited quite a number more. Um, and I, I would say that the cross-section is representative, uh, that a majority of the people are working as a majority of the recipients um, see this as a, uh, as, as Lucille said best, the woman that you just referred to as school bus driver uh, from St. Paul, Minnesota, I think she really summed it up when she said, put a little gas in my tank and I'll show you how far I can go. And that's really what this is about. It's, it's not like, hey, I want to live on welfare. I want to live on a handout. I'm expecting the government to take care of me, cradle the grave. It's no. It, it, at a time where uh, someone like Lucille has to work two jobs to support her large family as a single a mother. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's just helped me get to a place where I can even do more where I can take more advantages of my own initiative, my own talents. Uh, and as she says near the end of the film, most of her life she'd lived within that uh, kind of welfare mentality. If I work more than 24 hours uh, a week, I'll lose my food stamps. I might lose my housing voucher. So it was always like playing the game within the system. And what was, is unique about this approach is it cuts out the bureaucracy. You get the cash. You use it as you see it. Um, and as she says, oh, my God, now I, I can work 40 plus hours, you know, I, and, and I'm not worried about losing $500 a month. Um, and she realized a whole new horizon of potential. Uh, and so that's what this is really about. How do we, as, as Melvin Carter, the mayor of St. Paul, how do we invest in our own people? Uh, and that's really, I think, the bottom line. And as Michael Tubbs, uh, who started the Mayors for Guaranteed Income, says, you know, last night at the premiere, I thought it was a good line. He said, when the, when the Trump administration handed out checks, uh, when the pandemic hit and the lockdown hit, he said, I didn't see any Tea Party members going out and burning their check from the federal government. You know, everybody accepted the help. We were locked down. There was no work. There was no school. There was no going to the office. We needed help as a society. And uh, so his point is, this is really a nonpartisan issue. 
um, you know, that a majority of Americans are experiencing economic insecurity, this gap between the super wealthy and everyone else, which has only polarized our society. And we've got to start reimagining ways to address this. And this is certainly one of the more ambitious efforts. You know, I'm glad you brought up the COVID funding um, because one of the things you hear about inflation of the last couple of years is that it was inspired in part by COVID money, um, that because people had more money in their pockets, uh, auto dealers and landlords and others said, now we can charge a little bit more and get away with it. Um, do you think that will happen? I mean, do you think the universal basic income would result in just everybody raising their prices? Well, I think that is a legitimate uh, concern. Uh, Matthew Desmond's book, uh, Poverty by America, uh, makes the point that in states that raise the minimum wage, uh, that they saw shortly after that raising rents in certain neighborhoods. Uh, uh, and so that the, the renters were taking a piece of the increase in paying for labor. Uh, so that's an issue. And certainly in some of the critiques of, of, of the current inflation, it's uh, driven by a profit taking. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. You know, uh, major corporations are seeing uh, an opportunity to raise their prices. Uh, so look, um, you're always gonna have uh, the pluses and the minuses, uh, whether this is the answer I, I, you know, to a fundamental restructuring of, uh, of our economy. So, I mean, it's interesting that in the post-war period, uh, which now looks almost like a golden age, and of course there were lots of problems in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, uh, but there was a much greater sharing of wealth in the United States of America at that time. There was a much more progressive tax structure that we had. Uh, now, there's no doubt that technology, the, you know, the financialization, uh, the globalization, you know, a lot of things have changed. Uh, but uh, this so-called new gilded age um, is a prescription for polarization, political extremism, political violence, the back, the, 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 uh, the blowback from it uh, can go in different directions and sadly sometimes goes in a reactionary direction, a destabilizing direction. So, um, yeah, look, I'm sure uh, that there would be some people taking advantage of, uh, you know, raising prices in certain ways and in certain areas. Uh, but I think the, 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 the bottom line is how do you create a society that we all talk about equality of opportunity, that where the economy is, is delivering a world where we do create more equal opportunity. Uh, and we've been there before. Uh, we moved in a different direction at the beginning of the 80s. The whole Western world moved in a different direction, the market fundamentalism direction. Government is the problem. As Ronald Reagan says in the film, the seven most frightening words are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. Uh, and yet the mayor of, uh, of uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Mayor Siddiqui says, you know, I see politics, our role is to help people's lives get better. Um, so, you know, it's a built-in tension, uh, but I think right now, from my perspective and the importance of the film, 
is that we are so overwhelmed by the uh, kind of uh, soap opera coming out of Washington, and today is, of course, the historic day, the arraignment of, uh, of Trump, uh, that we lose sight of that there are um, positive uh, transformative ideas and, and movements and change happening out there, but we don't really hear much about it. Uh, and when we do, it can often be just dismissed quite equal, quite simply by, oh, you give somebody money and they're going to go spend it. And that's no way to build a society. Yeah. You know, one reason the Ronald Reagan line is so funny is because we all know the experience of the government micromanaging some element of our lives that we wish the government would have nothing to do with. But this is the opposite of that. I mean, this is the government giving you back the money and saying, we trust you to spend this money more than we trust ourselves to spend it, which I think probably makes sense to, I mean, a lot of us probably trust ourselves more than we trust the government to spend our money. I think so. And, and it has in that sense, a very libertarian side to it, which is why uh, people like Milton Friedman back in the uh, early 70s and even Nixon were attracted to the idea. It, it does cut out the middle people uh, in terms of a social service, you know, bureaucracy. Um, but uh, I think the, the the bottom line is, you know, is how do you create an economy that delivers for the common good, that builds the citizenry, that is all invested in making uh, the nation stronger uh, instead of an economy that delivers for a small elite that gets more and more power uh, while the rest are just struggling to keep the lights on and to pay the rent. I mean, that's the bottom line. The idea that, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, over a majority of the people in this country, if they suffered a $400 emergency, you know, would be in a state of financial crisis. Again, this is the modern world, as, as one of the uh, participants uh, says. I think it's uh, Alondra from uh, Los Angeles, a young Hispanic woman. Uh, she says, it costs money just to exist. That's the world we live in today. That's you know, it's, it's where, 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 you know, it's, it's, that is the world. Uh, so how do we make that work better? And this is an idea that is certainly worth considering uh, and that has not received the attention. I mean, obviously, Andrew Yang ran on the ticket of universal basic income, $1,000 a month for American citizens, which is a, a, a noble idea. But what this is, what guaranteed income pilots and programs are, is targeting people that need that help below a certain income level um, and, and, and trying to see what kind of impact it makes on their lives. And it says something about the way our society is organized. You make the point in this film that the existence of poverty is a policy choice that our country has made. The fact that so many of the people who benefit from this program are people whose jobs are helping other people. I mean, you have people working in a home for the disabled, you have a bus driver, you have uh, someone who's taking care of his autistic son. Almost all of the people at the bottom of the income ladder are people who are supporting other people, while the people who are making ridiculous amounts of money are getting passive income from their website or their Teslas or something. Um, it's, it's just kind of astonishing. That's a great point you make. Uh, and I'm not even sure I've, I've, I've fully thought that through. I think that's a very important point. In fact, Abby says at one point um, that uh, she she works with um, disabled adults 
And I think she says at one point, um, you know, it's, it's a very rewarding job to help other people, uh, but I just wish I was paid enough so I could help my own family. Uh, and that the idea that we don't value, like what you're saying, we don't value the, the those people who are essential workers, those people who help us, whether we're when we're young, whether when we're old, whether when we're sick and disabled, uh, they're the lowest on the pay scale. Uh, and that we do value the, the so-called masters of the universe and uh, uh, the technological innovators. Uh, so it's a very good point. Uh, and, uh, you know, how we uh, reintroduce the idea of compassion and cooperation into the culture uh, versus, uh, you know, competition and, uh, uh, and really even beyond that, uh, hatred. Uh, that's a big question. Um, but you make a very good point, and I don't think that was conscious. I think that, you know, in, in terms of us choosing people that were helping people, uh, I think that was just the way it worked. And, and that a lot of those people are motivated and, and are hard workers, uh, and yet they don't make enough to buy a house. They don't make enough, you know, to send their kids to daycare or hire a nanny. Um, and so they're really stuck. And yet they're not so impoverished that they can, you know, look to the government to fully support them. They're that huge number that are caught. Uh, and this can really make a difference. And that's, I think, one of the stunning things is $500, okay, it's not that much money a month, but a little bit of money can make a world of difference. And uh, you see that uh, in the personal stories of the characters that are in it's basic. You know, I like the people you chose. And I, you mentioned the diversity of the people you chose. I was listening to someone talk about how good they have it in Northern European countries where there's a lot of social programs um, that support and benefit everybody, whether it's education or medical care, and why we can't just do that here. And it seems like the reason we can't do that here is that because we're a more diverse country, it's very easy for politicians to say, you know, those people are going to benefit from it at cost to you and try to institute a crab, a crab in a barrel mentality, crabs in a barrel mentality, um, where, well, this social program is going to support these people of color you don't care about, or this other group that you don't care about. And it's a it's sort of the tragedy of America that we are able to do that here in a way that they're not able to do it in other countries. Yeah, I mean, is wonderful, but the fact that it's turned against us is sickening. It is, and and you know you you brought up healthcare. Obviously, most advanced uh, nations have universal healthcare. Uh, I think childcare is another. It's just I must say I, I was you know shocked and. Uh, it's just how little we do. And the fact that the child tax credit, we're here, you know, because of COVID, you know, we were able to help families that have kids and weren't going to school. They, you know, where were they going to, how were they going to continue working and still, you know, take care of their kids. And we were giving $300 uh, a kid to many families across the United States for six months, but you couldn't even get that renewed. Uh, when it came up, uh, it was a few votes short, sadly. Uh, and I think one, I, I think you're right about the, uh, 
the ethnic diversity and the, the, the power of separating groups and identity politics uh, and uh, the, the way that can be marshaled to uh, against kind of progressive ideas. But I think another thing is that it's just a there's a built in anti authority, anti federal government, you know, uh, gene in the American experience from the birth of the American Revolution, from the, the original colonialists that came over here fleeing the old world, wanting to start a new world. Um, but we but we've also shown that we can overcome that as uh, certainly the New Deal is is the shining example. But as we refer to uh, the the um, Johnson years, the war on poverty, uh, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King obviously was a huge proponent of guaranteed income. Uh, that was also a time of tremendous progress, uh, you know, um, and so it's not like it's impossible, but for the last 40 some years, we've moved in a different direction. And, and right now on this uh, arraignment day, uh, you know, we are in the throes of this, this kind of populist uh, reactionary uh, uh, authoritarian, uh, you know, impulse uh, that uh, it's okay, you know, uh, we've been left behind and let's blame it on somebody. And it's not just in America that that's happening. That's, that's uh, you know, across the, uh, the industrialized world. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I should just ask this for clarification, because um, it's important, who pays for this? I mean, in the programs that you've looked at, there's a lot of different people paying for it, right? It's public, private partnerships. How's it, how does it work? Yeah, it's it started totally private um, with uh, Michael Tubbs raising um, like uh, $25, million to seed uh, the first uh, 30 cities that came aboard and wanted to do pilots. Uh, then, as as a scene in the film reveals, uh, Melvin Carter from St. Paul, mayor, was the first mayor to say, why can't I use some of the care dollars, money that had come to help deal with the COVID pandemic. Um, this is a result of the COVID pandemic. People, you know, aren't able to pay their rent. They're not able to put gas in their car. Um, and so why can't we use some of those dollars? Now that, as you see in that scene, that shocked Michael, who had gone out and felt, you know, well, it's premature for us to say to our fellow citizens, your tax dollars are actually going to pay for some of this. Here, we can say, you know, this is not taxpayer money, it's philanthropic money, so don't complain about it. Let us do a pilot. Uh, but Melvin Carter opened the door to a mix of public and private. Uh, that's where it stands now. Uh, I should add that uh, the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, is the first city that has gone beyond a pilot. This is no longer a pilot in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is now municipal policy. If your income is below a certain level and you meet certain other requirements, you're not put into a lottery and then have to cross your fingers. You qualify and you can get $500 a month for a year. So this is the first city that has actually offered this as municipal policy. And then there are now there's this movement, counties, uh, for a guaranteed income. And that is interesting because that's also uh, going to reach some of these rural areas uh, that have not kind of been part of this movement, but that have to deal with a lot of this economic insecurity also. So uh, our hope is 
to, to take the film on a tour. Uh, the Maestro Guaranteed Income has been able to get some philanthropic support for a tour uh, from between this summer and uh, the election in 2024, uh, where there'll be discussions, town halls, panels uh, about how do we reimagine our economy? What can be done on the local level? And this film will be a uh, centerpiece to some of that. So that's going to be uh, really interesting to see how it plays as it goes around the country. And then hopefully distribution somewhere big. I mean, this seems like a very good HBO movie. This seems like a very good, I don't know if Netflix would be interested, but it's definitely a provocative enough idea that I would think any streaming service would be interested. No? Uh, that's a good question. So far, I mean, and, you know, I, we have not been aggressive uh, in, you know, in trying to license it yet. Uh, my sense of the marketplace right now is that if you talk about uh, a film that is dealing with uh, economic policy, uh, you know, you're going to find a lot of people saying that's a noble idea, but it's not something of interest right now. Uh, do you have any, uh, you know, uh, good hard crime stories or uh, good, you know, celebrity profiles uh, or, or music or sports stories? Uh, right now, and it's, there's even issue films. That's now a, that's a genre, you know. In other words, on a whiteboard in, in some executive's office, issue films. And this has been labeled an issue film. I mean, obviously, I see it as a, a human film, you know, because it's really yes, it is dealing with an issue of our economy and this idea of, of guaranteed income and, and how do we deal with generational poverty and racial injustice. Uh, and economic insecurity, but it's really the core of the film are human stories. It's really an American tapestry of uh, different Americans who are all, almost all working uh, and who are struggling and who've been lucky enough to be uh, picked by lottery uh, in, in one of these programs and what kind of difference that makes in their lives. So I see it as a human story and obviously the payoff with um, Lucille is a very emotional, you know, moving moment. Uh, but uh, on the uh, agendas of, uh, of most of the commercial distribution, you know, scene right now, it's seen as an issue film, which, you know, there's probably a limiter on how many any streamer or premium cable or whatever are allowed in terms of issue film. So we'll see. Um, but I, 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 you know, we're lucky enough to be in a position that we're kind of excited by this grassroots idea. We've, you know, um, a lot of our work obviously has been shown on HBO and, uh, and, and Netflix and, you know, many other places. Uh, so this is going to be interesting to see how bringing it to a lot of these cities that are conducting these pilots, uh, how it plays, what kind of discussion it stimulates, et cetera. But hopefully down the road, it will be available to your audience and many others who want to see it. Uh, the last thing I'll ask, and I realize I'm way over time, but this is fascinating, so I really apologize. But I can Don't remember I can remember watching Bangin' in Little Rock um, back in about 1995. Um, wow. My friends and I being just fascinated by it. Um, how, what advice do you have for people who want to make issue films and want to make important films and have a sustainable, ongoing, continuous, successful career? Um, 
Because it happens. Well, that's that's a that's a good question. You know, I, my son is 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 one of your generation, and uh, you know, is a filmmaker, and uh, spoke to one of his partners last night. It's it's a tricky time right now. I mean, on one hand, there are more um, opportunities than ever, especially in in the documentary world, the unscripted world. I mean, it crosses over with reality, etc. You know, so there's more opportunity to make a career, uh, to to support yourself, uh, and and yet, uh, what you asked about making issue films, or or, or so-called issue films, right? Um, it, it's tricky time for that, and there have to be alternative ways of financing. Uh, I have to admit that I hadn't really explored the philanthropic community. Um, I, I had found it too frustrating in my own limited experience that sometimes it took longer to apply for a grant and ask for more than all the work you put into actually making the documentary. Uh, so, um, but Michael is a Michael Tubbs, uh, you know, who I met up with when we made Stockton on my mind, an HBO film about uh, when he was the mayor of Stockton. Um, he is a, a uh, very successful fundraiser and uh, has been able to go into that world. So that's certainly one area that we're, we're you know, looking more into. Um, there's also obviously, uh, you know, raising money uh, uh, online, uh, you know, the different uh, apps that, are, you know, are available there. It's, uh, and I think my own feeling is that, you know, that, there is a consolidation happening right now in our industry, you know, that that's both financial is it's also to tech industry kind of consolidating its hold on the entertainment industry, but that out of that is going to grow new opportunities for people who are more daring, who are, you know, going to say, Hey, you know, aren't you tired of seeing the same old crime serial, you know, over and over again, uh, or celebrity bio and nothing against, those genres uh, because there's been some great work done in those genres but there's going to be um, new avenues i hope uh, and new opportunities uh, it, it's a it's a tricky time right now i would say you know in terms of so-called issue documentaries and but it's amazing that you mentioned banging in little rock <laughs> because uh I just brought it up. I mean, I can't believe you brought it up. Uh, obviously, Daphne Pinkerson is sitting right behind me. She's oh. the woman that actually wow. filmed the <laughs> drive-by in Little Rock. Uh, she videotaped it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> while I was hiding under the dashboard, she was somehow <laughs> recording that. Uh, but both of us just came uh, from an interview with Bill Clinton where, you know, this came up, obviously, uh, because, you know, we were in Little Rock uh, back in 92, 93, when he was just elected uh, president. And I know, you know, his daughter had, had, had seen the film quite a number of times. Uh, so it's so funny that you brought it up. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was uh, that film for us was uh, kind of a breakthrough, uh, not in, only in terms of how far it reached beyond anything we ever imagined. I mean, later in my life, I... I got to meet Dr. Dre and, and uh, I worked with Snoop on a movie uh, and they were both like, oh, 
you're Mark Levin, you made Banging in Little Rock. You know, we couldn't believe there were, you know, white kids in Little Rock, Arkansas doing Bow Wow Wow, Yippee Oh, Yippee Yay. Uh, and also for Daphne and I, it opened up uh, a whole world that we were not really that knowledgeable about, uh, which at some point we called gang nation. You know, in other words, this tribalization uh, that that uh, was happening with the breakdown of the family and, and, and these all these changes. Uh, we went on to make uh, a whole series of films for Sheila Evans at HBO, America Undercover, uh, many of them behind bars. Thug Life in D.C. is one that comes to mind immediately because uh, we're in touch with and working with some of the young men that we met back then who are now in their 40s, uh, but who are out and free and, and, and doing some incredible work. So the fact that you brought up Bangy and Little Rock, that is wild. And it's amazing how that film, how many people saw that film and how it really kind of changed our perspective on what was really going out there in the heartland. Well, it's also like think long and hard about the title of your movie because it's such a good title and it it resonates so much and explains what the movie exactly what the movie is about. And then there's the resonance of the president is from Little Rock at the time. There was just it, it was just like a the last place you would expect there to be gang banging. It was just, right. just perfectly, I mean, a great film, but also just a really well uh presented film, like all of your films. <laughs> so well. I, I I appreciate you know your your support uh, and uh, you know just to kind of wrap up, it's interesting in terms of we're talking about issue films. Uh, when Sheila was there and HBO was kind of more of an independent entity, um, when the Great Recession happened in two thousand and eight, that's where Daphne and I really did start focusing more on these stories of everyday people and how they were being impacted by these global economic forces. We did a film about the rags to riches to rags about the garment center and how that was the portal to the American middle class, but has now disappeared. Uh, we, we did a film called lost on Long Island that looked at the uh, white collar uh, jobs starting to disappear and, and, and Levittown, which was the original kind of American post-war suburbia. Uh, we did the film Class Divide about, you know, the growing gap between rich and poor through the eyes of kids right around the block from here. Um, so and, th and that eventually was where we heard about universal basic income, this idea. I, I wasn't that aware of it, but it was as we were doing those series of films that we started reading about uh, UBI uh, and this idea. Um, and, and it was what originally brought us to Stockton, California, where this youngest uh, mayor, he was 26 years old, Michael Tubbs, when he was elected, and he was the youngest mayor of a major U.S. city, uh, and he was backing the first municipal supported guaranteed income pilot. And that was one of the things that drew us there, his personal story also. So it's all connected. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of issue films, I, I guess I would say just bottom line is, you know, sometimes you go, you've got to just go out and make your movie. You know, you got to just go out, whether there's a buyer there, whether it's commission, uh, you got to have a, a small cadre, a small team uh, that's willing to just say, hey, we believe in something, you know, and th this is, you know, why we're here. We're going to make this film. Uh, and that's still, you know, um, a way of launching a career. Uh, when we did the film Slam, 
uh, which is hopefully going to be re-released uh, this late this fall or, or early this winter. Uh, it was a totally guerrilla effort. Uh, and, you know, and it was all because we were able to get in a prison where we've been doing Thug Life in D.C. Uh, and officials who were so frustrated by the system that they didn't ask for the normal, you know, where's the EEO insurance and, you know, how are you going to guarantee this? And they were just so at their wit's end that it was like anybody who's going to tell the truth here will give you 10 days. Go do it. Wow. Um, so sometimes you got to just take that leap and hopefully you have a team. And that would be the case with Slam where everybody was at that point in their life where they were willing to kind of jump off the cliff with no guarantees, no money, but just like we got to do it. And everybody was kind of in sync at that moment. They were at a turning point in their lives for different reasons. So I would say, you know, that's and that's always been true that, uh, you know, uh, a group of people can make a profound impact um, uh, when, when they commit themselves. And that's still, uh, I guess I would say, bottom line advice. You got to just go out and do it.